Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Previously on Booby Trap. It was assumed that Richie had a set of keys. I don't think that Chuck gave Richie the keys. I think that they were stolen. He's basically saying that I was the one who stole the keys. He's pinning this thing on me. Because these camping trips that Richie goes on, these are just an excuse to just get wasted for the whole weekend. It's Chuck who's initiating this sex play stuff. So now we're in the realm of pedophilia. You know, we're in the realm of sexual predator. This guy was doing some really bad things to boys. And the community was 100% behind Chuck to the point to where they started a petition that was called Friends for Falco. In 2003, Mike Fragameni received an invitation to attend North Miami High School's Class of 83 20th Reunion, which was to be held in South Florida that same year. With absolutely no interest in attending, Mike was one click away from deleting the email and getting on with his day. But right before his finger applied the necessary pressure to send the email happily on its way to the trash, he noticed a familiar name among the recipients. The name was Leanna, his former girlfriend from the seventh grade. On a whim, he decided to email her to try to get reacquainted. To his surprise, she responded the same day And the two of them were able to get caught up after losing touch for over 20 years. They continued to chat through emails and the occasional phone call. And during one of these conversations, Mike, who had completely forgotten that Leanna had even known Richie, mentioned his plan to write a book about the Richard Brush shooting. When Leanna heard Richie's name, it unlocked a stream of suppressed memories that came rushing in with the force of a tsunami.
Hello. In this very special episode, we're going to speak to Liana Echeverry, who was not only crucial to the early research of this podcast and forthcoming book, but was both Mike and Richie's girlfriend back in 1978. And we'll get the chance to hear her perspective on the events surrounding Richie's murder and what life was like for a teenage girl in the suburbs of North Miami in the late 1970s. Welcome to Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 5. So I guess this is a question for both of you. Can you remember how the two of you met? Okay, so how I met you. Yeah, you were just saying how you and I met and that, you know, we were in this math class together. I guess it was algebra, right? Or was it pre-algebra? I can't remember. I don't remember the moment or when we met each other. Uh, I think that young kids in school like that, a lot of times if there's an interest that the communication is through the best friends. Right, exactly. So in your case, it would probably be Jeff Horton and for me, Christina Manzio. He might have been like, Mike says he likes blah, blah, blah. Can you talk to her? And, you know? Yeah. So I don't recall the exact way that we met or the or how I was your girlfriend, but it, but it happened. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, your home life was a little different from mine, even though, like, our moms were almost carbon copies which is, I think, why we had so much in common. But I had my dad. My dad was cool. Like, he stayed and he was nurturing, whereas your dad kind of took off or whatever. So that's... so Yeah. So me and Mike had a joke, and we we used to say that we could have been brother and sister. Right. Because my dad was hanging out with his mom. I'm sure they probably, you know, had some intimate times together. <laughs> They were both really hot when they were young, both of our parents. (laughs) That's right. So, Leanna, why don't you tell me what it was like for you growing up in North Miami in 79? North Miami, uh, for me, was, I mean, my parents had divorced, so my mom is a single mom. Uh, I guess I was like 11, 12 years old, and uh, we lived in this kind of row or this area was all apartments because that's where all the single moms went because that's all they could afford. Mm. And I was definitely from, I don't remember how you categorize the two families, but I was definitely from the absent family, you know, the family that didn't, you know, we were on our own, most of us. It was a neighborhood full of unsupervised kids. <laughs> you know, and there were kids everywhere. Yeah. And we were just we just kind of fended for ourselves. We I did have some friends that were like a year older than me and uh, one in particular that tended to kind of look out for me. She had the same situation as I did though. Uh, But we'd spend a lot of time at the beach. That was definitely our weekend activity. And uh, a lot of times in the evenings you could find us like in the parks or we'd be hanging out in front of convenience stores. (laughs) We kind of did whatever we wanted, you know, Right, I remember my right. mother picking me up, hiding under a bush on Northeast 6th Avenue because I was trying to catch a bus at 1 a.m. because we were coming from your house. 
we were 12 years old and we were hanging out at your house till one o'clock in the morning and then trying to catch a bus home. That's right. But, um, yeah, so lots of lack of supervision and lots of kids just getting into stuff that they shouldn't have been getting into at that age. Because mom was, mom was working, and usually mom was drinking, and mom was definitely going to her boyfriend's house for the weekend. Do you feel like North Miami at that time was a safe place to grow up? Um, Well, for me as a kid, yeah, I felt like it was fine. But me as a grown person with kids, Mm -hmm. no. There was lots of drugs and there was lots of uh, perverts. And, you know, there was a lot of that. But you know how you feel as a kid. You're invincible and you're, you know, everything. So as a kid, I felt, I, I felt like it was fine. Mm -hmm. But uh, as an adult, you know, your perspective changes when you have kids and there's no way. (laughs) Looking back, not so safe. Not so safe. And I think that a lot of, you know, there were people around who took advantage of those situations. I mean, they were aware that we were unsupervised. So I definitely think that there were adults that that definitely took advantage of that. Which is very applicable to this story. Yeah. Now, remember, at this point in time, no one knew that Chuck was actually a pedophile and a sexual predator. Sadly, most of the mothers of Chuck's scouting troop, not knowing that their sons had been sexually abused by Chuck, were among those who identified themselves as friends for Falco. To cease and desist in its legal proceeding against C. Charles R. Falco, also a citizen and registered voter of Dade County. Friends for Falco was a petition that was circulated around the community, and it was primarily the moms of the scouts, um, which is ironic. And, um, and obviously what you've been referring to when you say going to the courthouse and hanging out at Chuck's house and being on Chuck's team and all of that stuff is part of this whole Friends for Falco thing, right? Right. I believe that we were definitely groomed, you know, by Chuck Falco to go with him to these court proceedings and to, you know, be on his team. And we, we really believed that he was a good guy. There was nothing about him that was controversial. There was nothing about him that would make you believe that he was a monster, which is crazy because, you know, in retrospect now, he just snowed everybody. Everyone believed that he was this upstanding, great guy. 
And they, you know, they all came and they all signed the petitions and they came to the meetings and they showed up in court. Yeah. The 20 Falco supporters present this evening vowed to help their friend by circulating petitions demanding that the manslaughter charges be dropped based on the right to protect one's own property. The group plans to meet again at Oak Grove Park next Friday night. Falco will be arraigned Monday in Dade Circuit Court. Bob Lawrence, Channel 4 News. The whole community basically came to Chuck's aid. Like they, they really didn't want him to get any prison time at all. They felt like it was justifiable homicide. Um, there were pretty much, Richie didn't have that many fans or support because um, the feeling was, well, maybe he got what he deserved. You know, I mean, he was breaking into someone's house and, you know, you shouldn't be doing that. And um, and Chuck was just defending his properties. Of course, at the time, no one knew about any of the other stuff that was going on in the background. And so, like you correctly pointed out, there was no counseling. There were no therapists at the time. So there was no way of sort of getting to the bottom. Okay, what's motivating this kid? Or what's going on with Jerry and, you know, and Tony Simmons? And all three of those kids had issues with Chuck, like real serious issues, you know, that would be motives for getting back at him or... You know, who knows? I mean, there's there's so many different variables there. But a lot of that stuff just wasn't even investigated. It wasn't even considered in those days. Carmine Falco appeared before Dade County Court Judge Arthur Winton and was charged with manslaughter. The 31-year-old scoutmaster, who is now relieved of all scouting duty, is charged in connection with the July 18th shooting death of 14-year-old Richard Brush Jr. inside Falco's home at 152 As stated in a previous episode, when Chuck was arrested for manslaughter, the community rallied in support around him. Primarily due to his volunteer work with disadvantaged kids, leadership as a scoutmaster, and clean criminal record, many citizens in the neighborhood believed that he was a positive addition to the community. They also believed that Chuck had a legal right to defend his property, and that Richie, more or less, got what he deserved. Liana, in your research, you came across a letter. Let's just call it a, a letter from a concerned citizen. Would you mind telling us about that? It's a letter to Fabio Alonzo and Ken Drucker, and they were from the state attorney's office. And, and Fabio was the detective investigating the case. And, of course, Ken Drucker was the assistant state district attorney. Right. Um, and this is somebody writing on behalf of Chuck Falco about the case and what they believe, you know, that he doesn't deserve to be charged and that Richie got what he had coming to him. Okay. It says, um, Dear Sir, this is a very strange case, but I feel that this man should not be accused of this murder. Have you asked yourself what was this 14-year-old kid doing breaking into his house? I guess there is no answer for it. And after three breaks, break-ins at his house, wouldn't you do the same trap? And there's two question marks after that. Um, I would for sure. It is almost sure that the same boy was the one that did it before. If with 14 years he was doing this, could you imagine what he would have done at 20? Really is very sad, but I'm sure that most of the concerned citizens feel the same way I do that this man, Mr. Falco, should not stand trial for this. This is where the law comes wrong, 
and it does come wrong so many times that it is really unbelievable. Why can I use deadly weapons to protect my property when there are so many breaking in and taking everything you have and work for away? This is wrong all the way. Thank you for your time. And it's signed Maria. I can't make out her last name, uh, but she's a resident from that neighborhood. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I, th- I think that there's a reason why that letter was was preserved in the file, because it more or less represents, you know, how people felt like, you know, after the. Right. Know. She definitely spoke for a group of people. And I guess apparently this letter was uh, printed in a section of the Miami News. Right. Yeah. And would these all be people from the neighborhood, would you say, or just from the, the Miami area? I would say the Miami area, because I don't know, I I couldn't tell you if there was more people from the neighborhood, but it was definitely people who were involved with this work that they were doing, where they were fostering these kids, you know? I see. Okay. It was a, I don't know, it was like a group home, I guess. We'll be right back. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So there's some news clips that you guys got a hold of uh, and it, some interesting things happen here. Right. It's a Friends for Falco meeting and describe the scenario for me and what you discover here and in the court transcripts. Yeah. One of the news clips that we have is when they were meeting actually at Oak Grove Park in one of those little, remember those little community house things? Yeah. You know, (laughs) this little housing, they look like little little cabins. And the leader behind this um, Friends for Falco is uh, a man who's, winds up becoming really, really... um, uh, Instrumental? Instrumental, yeah, in um, uh, this post-shooting environment, you know, where uh, they're not sure if they're going to charge Chuck, and then they decide, okay, manslaughter, um, and Chuck winds up pleading no contest, which means that he's at the mercy of the judge. The judge is going to pass sentencing. Um, What they do wind up having is a sentencing hearing, which is what you went to, Leanna, like that's that's what you were there for. And... um, this uh, character, his name was Joseph Carroll, and he was referred to as either Reverend Joseph Carroll or Father Joseph Carroll. 
Reverend Joseph Carroll has known Charles Falco for over 20 years. In New York, Father Carroll was the master of Falco's scout troop. Now Charles Falco is charged with manslaughter for the death of one of his own scouts, 14-year-old Richard Brush. After a short stay in jail, he was released to Father Carroll's custody. Once again, the former Catholic priest is coming to his rescue. In the past, say, several weeks, he's been receiving letters from concerned citizens because uh, many of them feel that his basic rights, his civil rights, or constitutional rights have been uh, uh, more or less been, uh, say, uh, taken away from him. And uh, what we're doing is, since a lot of letters have come in, a lot of calls have come in, we're trying to get these people together in order that we may be able to hash out or, or share ideas. Father Carroll is also trying to collect money to help with the legal fees. Falco is scheduled to be arraigned Monday, August 6th. Diana Gonzalez, Channel 4 News. I can't find any affiliation, you know, with any denomination that this guy had. I don't know. Perhaps he was a reverend. Perhaps he was in the Catholic Church for a while. And then in one of the news reports, they say that um, he's no longer affiliated with the church. So something happened. Uh, I don't know if that's even true. At the end of the day... When I think of Father Carroll, I'm thinking of someone who literally just went to a, a, a costume store and bought a priest outfit and just put it on. And he's basically walking around like he's a priest or a reverend. And I don't mm-hmm. think, I don't know what, what the court did to test to see if he even, like what his qualifications were. Yeah, I mean, I saw some of those judges. I don't think they did anything. Mm-hmm. I think anyone could have walked in there and said claim to be anybody. Right. And that's that. we're like, well, okay. Yeah. And that's the conclusion I came to. Now, yeah. once again, this guy was extremely instrumental in helping Chuck. Um, oh, yeah. And, and it says in one of the uh, news reports, it says that after Chuck was arrested, right, he was released in the care of Father Carroll. In other words, because he was affiliated with the church, he had some sort of, you know, denomination affiliation or whatever, that the court was willing to release this, you know, criminal, as long as he agreed to stay with the father. Now, what's funny about this is that, of course, these two guys had known each other for 20 years at that point. In 1961, when Chuck was 13 years old, he joined Father Carroll's scouting troop. Father Carroll, 18 years old at the time, was one of the senior scouts and later became Chuck's scout master. In the court transcripts, he states that, and I'm paraphrasing, Chuck was an exceptional scout. Even though he had no previous experience, he came in not knowing anything and excelled, winning all of the medals and setting an example to the rest of the scouts. He was very impressive. This relationship is eerily similar to Chuck's relationship with Richie. Now, if you just take that out of context and you apply it to Richie, it's almost word for word. Okay, so it is it is so weird that Richie basically was Chuck and Chuck was Father Carroll later on. And you could see that there's a pattern here, right? And so um, this Father Carroll guy is helping Chuck. He's the one who orchestrates the Friends for Falco. Um, At the sentencing hearing, um, they wheeled out, you know, half a dozen people who spoke on behalf of Chuck. 
and all of it was positive. And of course, Chuck surrounded himself with kids from the community, which is the reason why you were there. Um, mm-hmm. And ultimately, his penalty for the death of Richard Brush was six months in jail. Chuck Falco received a six-month sentence, including time already served, with two years probation. In addition, defense attorney Lipton had pleaded with the judge to allow Chuck to serve the remainder of his sentence on weekends because he was such an upstanding citizen and a positive influence in the community. So to continue with Father Carroll, um, so I did some research on this guy because I just get seeing him in these news clips. I, I thought, first of all, he started to look familiar. And I'm starting to think that is, is this guy the wannabe gangster? You mean the trade winds guy from episode three? Yeah, exactly. So yeah. I started thinking like, okay, I thought this wannabe gangster guy was like in his 50s. But I got to think when I was 14, anyone who was like 35 or older might as well have been. Looked like they were in their 50s. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm starting to think that now this answers another one of these little blind spots in my story. Because when I met with Chuck, he seemed to already know about me selling the Placidils at Hollover Park. And these Placidils that I had gotten from this this gangster guy. And so, yeah, and Chuck was trying to shame me for doing that. He was saying, you know, I, you, know you could get into a lot of trouble and all this stuff. So he was trying to use that as leverage against me. Um, but I always thought it was odd that he seemed to know about that. And I just figured that maybe Tony Simmons probably just told him. But that would make so much sense because then... It would make sense as to why Tony would know him, why Tony would have been comfortable with him, because Tony would have known him through Chuck and Richie and all those guys, because Father Carol and and Chuck were such good friends. So I did some research in this guy, and I couldn't find any information about him being a father or a reverend or anything. And I just got this hunch. I figured, okay, well, he was a scout in the early 60s. Um, I wonder if he was also a scoutmaster. Sure enough, I run his name with scoutmaster and boom, I get a hit instantly. It's the first thing that comes up. And it's a BSA report, Boy Scouts of America report um, on sexual predators in the Boy Scouts. And his name's on the list. And there's a whole file on him, which I think I sent you guys. Was that in 2012? Part I of the think so. Court order, yeah. Part of the court order release of all those sexual abuse claims? Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was the same one. But there's a file available online of him. Um, so I downloaded that and I looked through it and I read it. It turns out that Father Carroll was a scoutmaster and he was molesting boys exactly the same way Chuck had been molesting boys in Troop 85. Right. And... Um, and uh, there were multiple counts against uh, Joseph Carroll. Um, he was arrested in 1987. Um, he's in jail for life. He's never getting out. He's still alive. He's in jail right now as we speak. Um, and, um, and his M.O. is exactly carbon copy of Chuck's. I would venture to say that, that Joseph Carroll indoctrinated Chuck into that lifestyle when Chuck was 13. And, um, and so Chuck, we could even say, was a victim initially. When they first began their research, 
Mike and Leanna pored over all of the news footage and articles they could find about the case, mainly through the Miami-Dade Community College archives. Unfortunately, their search turned up very little. But this was 10 years ago. When they looked again in 2018, they were surprised to find some interesting new material they'd previously known nothing about. They had footage, old news footage. And this guy shows up, this Father Carroll, and Mike and I were talking on the phone and we were like, what's up with that father guy? Like, he can't even formulate a sentence. Like, there's something that's totally not right about him. Friends of Falco organizer Reverend Joseph Carroll says the incident was the result of a much greater societal problem. You talk about Utah, like can only hold you know, 150 kids, and they're up to 180 kids, and they call that overcrowded. And yet you can go to a place that has 25 acres and call that a zoo, where each animal has their own maybe uh, a 20-by-something space where they can run around in. Uh, <laughs> wow, what kind of mumbo-jumbo is going on And he there? sends me a mugshot of the guy, and I literally jumped out of my seat. You can't write this stuff. Like, you couldn't make this shit up. That's right. So crazy. Uh, It's a whole other branch of the story that no one's ever even talked about. You know, it's funny because in my notes, my outline, um, different outlines I have for the book, I had a note in one of them that said, uh, look up Father Carroll, try to get some more information on him. And this was, this goes back like years when I was initially just sort of doing the structure of the book. And I just never got around to it until you sent me those videos. And I finally thought, oh, yeah, that's right. And, I, and just seeing him, that, like I said, something triggered in my head that, number one, he looked familiar. Mm-hmm. And number two, there was something about his his body language and the way he talked. And I just thought, you know, he seems kind of creepy. And um, so that's when I talked to you and I said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to the bottom of this guy. That's right. Yeah. The role he played, which was so significant in wrapping up the Richard Brush shooting. In other words, concluding it. He basically vouched for Chuck. Right. And because he was a religious guy, a religious man, a leader of the religious community or whatever, that he wasn't, I'm confident that he wasn't, that was all the clout that he needed. Right. They had a lot of guts. um, Because if, if they had been exposed, that thing would have unraveled so quickly. Um, I mean, they eventually got what they deserved. It just took longer. Because Liana had been pushing away these memories for so long, in 2003, when Mike had brought them up again, What ended up happening was that she began to experience them all at once, as if they had happened yesterday. I guess starting from where you called me, and I think I was at work, and you called me and you mentioned that, and I just, like, it just rushed right back at me. Because even though I remember talking to people about it when I was much younger, um, it just kind of, like, faded away from my you know, from the front of my memory. And I hadn't thought about it for years. And when you brought it up, it just, it, it all came back. I know you remember my reaction. I was like kind of freaking right. out a little bit. Yeah. I was processing it. 
um, as if it had just happened. And I was spontaneously crying, like just having this, this immense grief. Um, and that's how I ended up talking to a clinical psychologist because I was like, what's happening to me? Like, this is crazy. I'm an adult. This happened all these years ago. You know, this was a, a summer relationship when I was 14 years old. Um, but the psychologist said, you know, you're processing stuff that you've suppressed all these years. And she recommended to me to maybe, maybe if I don't remember it, there's a reason why I don't remember stuff. Mm. So there's all this residual trauma, you know, that goes along with this stuff. And especially at that age, you know, and that it's a difficult time anyway. Um, yeah. But there was no counseling for anybody. Like now, teachers and parents and everyone knows that this is like post-traumatic shit, you know, and how my parents didn't address it. And I'm sure most people's parents didn't. No, nobody did because nobody thought to do that. Business as usual. Everyone goes back to school. Yeah. Nobody realized the repercussions from that stuff. Like me grieving 30 years later, however long it was. Um, but I'm better now. <laughs> but it was really intense. And, uh, and while I was going through that, also trying to kind of do my own investigating, you know, talking with Mike a lot. So I was calling a lot of my old friends and talking to them about what did they remember. And Leanna, you told me before that you had taken on the task of trying to find Jerry Rakowski. And did you have any luck with that? Um, I was really digging around a lot on the internet and it was 10 years ago. So things have really changed. Like it's easier now, even although I can't find him now because I tried again. But I want to say that I found him through either Ancestry.com or I found a lot of information there. Um, I might have just found him right through the clerk of the court's office. Clerk of the court's office. Yeah. And he came up with a pretty long record of arrest. But we never found a way to contact him. Right. Even now, like looking for him, I can't find anything. Yeah, he's done a really good job of sort of disappearing. But the, the, the thing I remember you telling me, and like you said, this is about 10 years ago, give or take. But I, <laughs> I just remember you saying, I don't know if you want to find this guy or something. I was like thinking, yeah, he was he was kind of a pit bull. I mean, like he was one of these guys that like, if you got into a fight with him, and even if you won the fight, right, he would still hurt you. You wouldn't come out of it unscathed. Like he would, he would definitely take a toll on you. And I never thought it was worth it. I mean, first of all, I wasn't a big fighter, but it was just like, it just wasn't worth it to get into a fight with any of the guys who were like another kid who was like that, even though he was tiny. I don't know if you remember him, but Mike Armstrong. Remember Mike Armstrong? Uh That kid, he was tough. Oh my God. And he was like so small. He was like, God, he's barely five feet. Scrappy, because they were the little guys, so they had a lot to prove. Yeah. They were super scrappy kids, yeah. yeah. And he would just, he'd like climb up somebody and just kick the shit out of them. Yeah, yeah. God. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, Jerry, I would put Jerry in that category. I think Jerry was one of those guys. And, um, 
And that's also part of the reason why I think that Jerry was able to, you know, stand up to Chuck. I don't know that Jerry did or didn't participate in the sexual stuff that was going on. But the one thing I do know is that Jerry wasn't manipulated by Chuck. He wouldn't allow that. Though Leanna and Richie had only dated for a brief time, the relationship lasted long enough for her to meet Chuck. And after talking with an old school friend, Nancy Huffman, who was also friends with Richie, Leanna began to remember the different times that she spent hanging out at Chuck's house. Um, his wife's name is Carrie, and uh, I remember her being literally silent. Like, I'm sure she was like, why are these girls here? And this isn't, I, and I don't know what she was dealing with. You know, she was there for the whole thing. And I, I just like, I don't know what she was thinking, but in retrospect, I believe that we were there because that was by design, you know, to make him look a certain way. If you like that old footage that we just watched, like me and Tony Simmons and Nancy and the boy scout in his full, you know, boy scout, you know, trying to create an image of himself. But, um, I couldn't tell you anything like really out of the ordinary in the house other than they had a raccoon. They had a pet raccoon. Yeah, which is bizarre. So they get into (laughs) things, yeah. Yeah. So who was Nancy Huffman? Nancy Huffman was a friend of mine, uh, particularly during that summer. She was a grade higher than me. And, uh, she was one of those kids who had come from a different school, so I didn't know her from grade school. I just knew her from middle school. And so we spent time uh, that summer together, and, you know, she had also had parents that were considerably older. Her mom had pretty recently, I think, committed suicide, and the dad just didn't know how to handle her. She was pretty wild, which made her very fun to hang out with. Um, but I called her. And I'd asked her some questions. And one of the things she said to me was that, um, I'll just read it to you because I wrote it down. So, okay. okay. She said she remembers going to Chuck's house when Chuck wasn't home to get high. And she says, we went through the front door. Richie must have had keys to the house. Because when I was talking to her about it and she said to me, oh yeah, we used to go to Chuck's house. You know, we'd go there when he wasn't home and we'd go get high. And I said, oh, well, how did he get in? Do we like break it in the back? He had like glass Mm. sliding doors, which were easy if they didn't have a stick in them to kind of lift up and move over. And she's like, no, we went in through the front door. He must have had a set of keys. And this, the keys weren't even a conversation yet. So that it's funny because I wrote this down and then the keys became an issue. And then this showed up later. Yeah. You know, I don't really, I don't recall doing that. Maybe I was really high. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and she, and when she said it, she was reminding you that you were with them, right? Oh, of course. She was with them because she was with me. Right. Right. So that, she was my tag along. Right. Right. 
What was the funeral like? What do you remember about that? The family, you know, when the incident happened initially, um, it seemed like they weren't angry with Chuck or they didn't necessarily hold them responsible, I guess, after the shock wore off and maybe understanding the situation more. Like, why did he have, you know, this booby trap in his house? And But they requested that he not come to the funeral and he was really upset about it. And I remember uh, was Richie's older sister, Lorraine, and the yeah, boyfriend Dean or something? Yeah. And I think the boyfriend threatening to beat the shit out of him if he showed up at the funeral. After the funeral, Julie and I ended up at his house, and we had a conversation about it, and uh, neither one of us could remember if, if he had requested that, if he had said, you know, like we were going back literally to kind of report to him you know, what happened at the funeral, um, or if we felt bad for him because we felt like he was left out and we went to his house after the funeral, but that's where we ended up. So, Hmm. and again, I don't really remember what happened during that visit. I do remember being there other times. And I think these were kind of on the way to the courthouse and, uh, seeing, you know, there were file folders on the table and actually seeing one of the crime scene photos and him like scooping it up and, you know, closing it up and saying, you don't need to see that. We'll be right back. One of the things that I um, noticed in the Jerry deposition was that he says, he specifically says that Richie was planning on hanging out with you the, the night he got killed. This is when Jerry's still denying even helping Richie break into the house um, in the deposition. Like Jerry's basically denying everything. Um, and he's basically saying that he last time he saw Richie was at like 4 or 4.30 and he was watering Chuck's lawn. And then Jerry had to go home and do chores or like, you know, do his homework or something. And then the lawyer says, well, were you planning on hanging out with Richie again? And then he says, no. And the lawyer says, well, why? And he says, well, because he was planning on seeing his girlfriend that night. And then the lawyer says, well, what's what's his girlfriend's name? And he actually names you. Yeah. So I don't remember if we were supposed to see each other that night or not. I do remember the next morning, though, because I was sleeping on the couch and I lived in a one-bedroom apartment with my mom. And uh, and I was having a dream. And I dreamt that Richard Brush was in Oak Grove Park and he got shot. Think what happened. I'm almost, well, I'm sure probably what happened was that somebody called. To this day, I don't know who called. But my mom was probably on the phone getting the phone call and getting the news. And I incorporated, you know, hearing that, I think I probably incorporated it into a dream so that when my dad came and woke me up and looked at me, I looked at him and I knew immediately what had happened. I already knew that he had been shot. This case at the time 
you had the the local neighborhood okay so everyone in the neighborhood knew what was going on of course us kids we knew even more than right. the people who were investigating it because like i said initially in the first episode us kids like we we talked we had a certain code so um and then of course in the greater miami area it was a huge story but this story was so big it even reached the national news but what was weird about this whole thing is that this story became about Chuck and whether you were allowed to protect your property like that. And it was almost secondary that a 14-year-old kid had been shot and died in this guy's house. And then all of the focus was on, you know, people being able to protect their property. Mm -hmm. Right. And sympathizing with Chuck. Falco allegedly set up a rifle as a booby trap inside his home. Detectives say Brush was shot and killed as he broke into his scoutmaster's house. Falco is released by Judge Winton into the custody of Father Joseph Carroll, who worked with Falco in a church-related youth group. Detectives say this may be the first time the issue of criminal negligence in connection with a booby trap killing will be considered in a Florida well, court. Uh, let's not say that it's whether it's legal or it's not legal. There's no case in the state to say otherwise, but there was all the things that he could have done to secure his premises instead of doing something to that effect. Carmen Falco faces an August 6th arraignment in Dade Circuit Court, and defense attorneys say he will plead not guilty to charges of manslaughter. Al Sunshine, Channel 4 News. And if you look at the footage of him, he's got to be playing it up. He's like the sad face, you know, and the big doughy eyes, and I feel like he's just playing up to it. And there's even a scene where he's sitting in, and I think, Mike, you said that it's the meeting for Friends for Falco, and he's Mm -hmm. sitting with his wife, and they're both sitting there with their hands in their lap, and he notices the camera, and he reaches over and he grabs her hand, and he's holding her hand. And I'm like, so so much of it seems so contrived. Uh, He definitely seems to have... A lot of the indications of a narcissistic sociopath. Just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> well, like you told me in a previous conversation that um, that these guys, they're experts sort of like at lying. I mean, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but it was just like, it's pretty impressive. I mean, in a very horrific way. Textbook is probably what I said. Yeah. It is absolutely like, now we know that this personality and this person exists. And they're so common and they literally, everything that he did is literally by the book, you know, being uh, in charge of a boy scout group, you know, having access to young boys and getting the trust of the parents and maintaining those close contacts with the parents, you know, getting the kids on his side, like, Hey, I know your parents won't let you do this, but you know, we could just do, you know, getting so, and then having something on the kids. At the same time, like, I'll smoke pot with you. You know, if you do this, I'm going to tell your parents what you've been up to. And, like, if you look at the personality type, it's like they have a checklist. You know, how to groom these kids. And that's what Chuck Falco was, but people just weren't sophisticated about it. They didn't know. It was the 70s. There were creeps everywhere. It's probably where all the case studies came from. Right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But but you said something in addition to that, which... When, when we look at that old footage and when I read through the, the transcripts and stuff and just the bold face lying and doing it in such a confident, cocky way. That's that, that the narcissist. Yeah. 
Exactly. Obviously traumatized by the events of 1979, Liana was suffering a form of PTSD. One of the symptoms was memory loss. In an attempt to try to fill in some of the gaps, in 2009, Liana reached out to Carrie, Chuck's wife at the time of the shooting. I wrote his wife a letter, who I'm sure is his ex-wife, said, uh, Dear Carrie, you may not remember me. It will have been 30 years since you last saw me. My name is Leanna Echeverry, and I'm one of the kids from North Miami. I was Richard Brush's girlfriend. I remember things here and there about the incident, and I even remember being in your house after Richie died. I met your pet raccoon, and I went to the courthouse with you and Chuck in October. Most of my experience with Richie, along with a good chunk of 1979, has been blocked out of my memory. I probably would have been perfectly content continuing to disassociate with that part of my life. However, an old friend of mine approached me with the proposition of writing a book. The book tells the story of Richard Brush and some of us kids and what that time of our lives were like for us. Um, I've thought of you and what the ordeal may have been like for you. So many people were affected. I have a vague memory of you. Mostly I remember you being pretty quiet. Maybe it was all too much. My life changed a lot, my personality, really, after Richie died. I'm sure I was already well on my way. Like most of the kids in the neighborhood, I came from a dysfunctional single-parent household that was riddled with alcoholism, drug abuse, and parental neglect. We were all left to our own devices, and when Richie died, I had no one to intervene or recognize that I was isolating myself, sleeping too much, and not going to school. I, in fact, do not remember the remainder of the summer of 79 or the first half of the school year, which would have been ninth grade for me. The event that I find strangest of all is that I have no recollection of is Richie's funeral. What I'm asking you, Carrie, is for a glimpse into my past, a past that no longer exists in my memory, and if you're up to it, your perspective on what happened with Richie's death, the aftermath, and Troop 85. I would appreciate anything that you would be willing to share with me. I apologize for the intrusion. I'm just trying to discover my 14-year-old self again. And I never heard from her. And we can only hope that she's moved on in her life. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how I would feel if I was her getting a letter like that. Yeah. I wouldn't feel obligated, you know, to respond. It's just, I mean, assuming that she didn't realize what was going on. Yeah, it's, it's, it, that's a big sort of, you know, unknown in this story is uh, the role she played and, and whether she knew anything or if Chuck was just totally manipulating her um, or just keeping her in the dark and lying. I, it's it's hard to know. Yeah. She could have been terrified of him. Yeah. Um, that guy had a cold stare, you know, that was frightful. There's a an emptiness in those eyes. Like, it's a dullness. Like, there's just something there that is very scary. Yeah, you've experienced that firsthand. Right. Yeah. So, you know, if he had that in his arsenal and he could be that way with his wife, who knows? Who, who knows what, you know, um, what sort of dynamic they had? This was a child molester, a sexual predator, 
who, of course, at the time, they weren't even investigating that. Well, I'm sure he felt pretty untouchable right. after all of that. His confidence was all the way up. He got away with everything. Yeah, he did. The fact that Chuck wasn't punished properly for Richie's death, and then the fact that they had no clue as to what was going on with the with the molestation, and they set this guy loose on the street again. And the first thing he starts planning is, how do I get revenge on Jerry Brakowski? on Booby Trap. 1980, and just thinking like, God, that eight looks weird. He was enticing Jerry to come out and have sex with him. He would also get rid of the one kid that could compromise him. Mm-hmm. I could drive by with a shotgun, pull a shotgun out the window, and cut you in half, and no one would even recognize what went on. Jerry Bukowski was in the house uh, the day of Richie Pleasure's death. It's an orange tank top, and it was found next to Richie's body. The Miami Chronicle's Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragaman. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode. Pray for Rain. Mark McCartney, Pale Lips, Mr. Sonny Duval, The Nutrients, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners. Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.